0: we've all got to be big enough. It you know, doesn't matter about job titles or you know, your own deluded position in your own head of your worth. It is um, about listening to everybody and trying to get out of everybody how we can make things better and everybody's got the opportunity to then impact on what we do mm-hmm. um, and hopefully you know, we get there. Mm-hmm.
1: Welcome to the MacVet podcast, the show that talks about communication, cows, and coffee. I'm your host, Fiona McGilvery, and today I'm in not sunny Cheshire, but I'm speaking to Cheshire dairy farmer Phil Latham. Phil, welcome to the show. Good morning. It's lovely to see you, lovely to meet you. And I'm super impressed by this amazing establishment here, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but I'd like you just to start by um, describing what it is you do.
0: So I try to manage um, about a thousand acres, which is split into two main parcels. We're tenants on Lord Chumley's estate where we dairy farm with 500 pedigree brown Swiss dairy cows. And um, the other half of the business is at Kelso, where we're running a sort of diversified business. We've just reinvested a lot of money into a equestrian centre and we've got commercial lets and we're also the granary and forage store for the dairy farm. So we're still actively farming here, uh, most of the land, um, even though the main infrastructure doesn't look like that.
1: Wow. Plenty going on then. Plenty. <laughs> And so how have you got to this position? Um...
0: So I came home in 1991 having graduated, did zoology, came home, uh, went around the world for a little bit and then uh, my dad asked me um, if I wanted to come into the business with him and I said yes so he promptly said well you know nothing about farming so Go and find yourself a course. So I went to Rees Heath and did a dairy herd management course, uh, and then got stuck into the helping immediately. I guess managing the dairy farm. Dad was very good like that. He said, uh, I, "Well, I, when I came back, he said when do we when do we do first cut silage? When you want." Oh, oh. oh. So from twenty two onwards, I've been lucky enough to have those sort of management decisions uh, because at the time he was up here at. At Kelso, redeveloping this farm. So we bought this farm in '92, um, developed it uh, with two milking parlors, 300 new cubicles, and developed it into a 500 cow herd. And over time, we grew the farm from the original 300 or so acres that we bought to 550 acres. Um, and uh, We ran it as a dairy farm until 2004, but by that stage, so 12 years into my farming career, it was hard. We're 40 miles apart on two units, all run through managed labor. Mm. The problems of today were the same then in staff retention, finding a manager who wanted to really manage, who could retain staff, Um, and we said, well, okay, look, there's got to be a better way. You know, we have to do this. Let's see if we've got a, a... a way of balancing things up to get, um, a better sense of adventure and more fun. Um, and so 2004, we took, uh, the decision to, uh, pack the dairy cows in at organsdale and to expand the herd at Brookhouse. So we went from 350 cows to 500 cows at the other farm and then shut the herd down here. And then the question was, we've got all this space, then how do you find a value in space? Mm. And that was, that's been the mission ever since.
1: Right. Okay, that's a nice uh, explanation and obviously being here is even more uh, exciting because I can absolutely put in context what you've just described, um, which is difficult to explain on obviously audio, (laughs) but we'll take lots of photos. So just going back to that um, exciting and maybe scary position coming back from doing your course at Rees Heath. How did you feel about taking on that sort of responsibility, which was amazing for your father to give to you? But I guess, uh, how how did you feel at that point?
0: I think at that stage, it's really challenging. You're half the age of most of the people you're working with.
2: Yeah,
0: good point. Um, They've got experience, you have none. So I guess the question was for me to sort of grapple with why do we do what we do? How do we do it? Mm. And um, one of the first questions I was asking myself was, you know, why do we um why do we need a contract rear? At the time we were rearing heifers, sending them off to a guy down in Oxford, getting them back. You know, it's an enormous bill.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Why? Why is that bill so big? Um, and in truth, if you're honest, and uh um, I think it's much better if you are, um, most of the cows that leave the herd leave the herd because we stuffed them up at some point we got the diet wrong got our management wrong which created more compromise and that compromise manifests itself in terms of lameness mastitis infertility and accidents and things that go wrong but essentially mostly most culls are um, cows that leave the herd because they have to because at some point if we're honest we were suboptimal in our management and so I set about trying to do everything I learnt at Rees Heath. You can imagine metabolic profiles, Q sums, data mates, lots of data, lots of diets, lots of minerals, supplements, everything that you know you're told mm. is important. And I started looking at fertility as an index of um, cow welfare and trying to make sure that we optimised it. Um, and after four years of doing that we'd made literally no progress at all and I think the challenge there was we called it all seasonality, we explained things away, the vet says you've got a disease, the nutritionist says it's the disease or the cows, the herdsman says it's maybe a mystery disease or a cows or whatever and so you're not in control, there's no steer, no rudder Mm. and so we submitted all our four years worth of data and heat observations five times a day, all this kind of thing to a professor of fertility and said, why are we making no progress? And she said, well, your cows are on a metabolic knife edge. Okay. Now, what do I do? Yeah. How do I avoid the knife edge? Mm -hmm. Truthfully, economically, I probably need to be somewhere where I feed the cows economically. Is that the knife edge? Mm. But then you look at, um, you look at the uh, reality of it. If it was just the amount you feed, Mm. people who feed the most would have the most fertility. It doesn't work like that. Mm. So it's about balance. And so what we did is we brought in, I was introduced via BOCM Pauls to Dr. Dirk Zier. And Dirk was a Dutch vet Mm -hmm. obsessed by fertility and with very refined rectal palpation skills. So he would come and for a number of years would, rectally palpate every cow three weeks carved up to the point of service and everything that was PD negative. So everything that was cycling in the herd. Mm. And so we used to run a population approach of saying, well, of the cows that are cycling at the moment in a year round calving strategy, um, how many cows are cycling abnormally? Mm. How many are normal? Of the abnormal cows, are they, you know, they have pyometria? They've got endometriosis. Mm. Um, do they have, uh, no activity on the ovaries, are they cystic? And what Dirk would call a spongy CL, which is a, a more vascularized corpus luteum as opposed to not one with a lacuna in the middle of it, a sort of you know hole, but actually something that um, when they overectomized some cows that you trekked actually got the CLs that he said were spongy, which no one else recognises, um, they were more vascularized. So and so by looking at the incidence of each one of those abnormalities, we would then try and tweak the diet to make sure next month, when we did the assessment, things got better. And over a period then for three years, things got better and better and better. Um, The problem was, I guess, at the end of that period, I did a Nuffield scholarship in uh, looking at uh, cow welfare and fertility in Mm -hmm. Australia, New Zealand, and Holland. Um, And then my journey into sort of being a bit more remote from the cows, happened and right. I don't milk, you know, stop them milking the cows as much um, as we tried to grow the business and I got more involved at, uh, up here at Kelso, and um, and so I started doing a lot less hands-on mm-hmm. management with the cows then and things started to drift a little bit whether that was just conceited of me that it had something to do with me or whether we never quite got the results back so after about eight years of using Dirk with the, the results started to go away a little bit and we parted company with his services, but I learned an awful lot from him Mm -hmm. about, he was one of the original cow signals kind of guys, you know, room and fill scoring, manure scoring and, um, manure digestion. But that thing that he did relating diet to cyclicity of the cows, I think is still way ahead of the game. Most people still aren't doing that. Most nutritionists can't cope with the reality that the cyclicity is probably an impact of their diet. Mm -hmm. And most vets can't do the rectal palpation in order to deliver the information back to the farmer. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit sad because truthfully, I think the challenge is still the same. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, we then move the goalposts because now we're autumn calving predominantly with a spring calving element. So um, we haven't got the ability to tweak month on month. So it's much higher risk as a strategy. You get the diet right, you get the diet wrong, get the Mm -hmm. diet wrong, you've got a lot more problems and so it's less time to react. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that was my journey into dairy farming.
1: So <clears throat> how connected would you say you are currently with, with the dairy farm?
0: I spend not a lot of time hands on, and that's not to try and be clever. It's, we've got a much expanded team now with the diversification and we're only two years in throwing the doors open to customers. So there's an awful lot of new new mm-hmm. challenges, bigger admin team, cafe team, uh, a team to deliver what's going on outside. And so mm-hmm. there's three times the number of staff here than there are on the dairy farm. So mm-hmm. predominantly my time is spent trying to work out how we're going to address the challenges here. Yeah. I'm very lucky. I work with an excellent herd manager who I've now worked with for 25 years. So we catch up every Tuesday if we can mm-hmm. and then look at the grass coming through the um, net. Uh, grazing program so we can see the grass wedge, mm-hmm. make decisions strategically around that and cropping and silaging and breeding and so on. But I'm not hands-on in terms of delivering the, the routine as much as I was, nowhere near.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> <clears throat> to make a good point, you have a regular weekly catch up with the herds- herdsman um, How do you feel communication is as a whole in your massive enterprise? Well that, is
0: the, that is the the challenge. If you mm-hmm. You know, if you do one of these little diagrams where if you've got a team of one, there's no one to talk to. If you've got a team mm-hmm. of two, there's only one line of communication. Team of three, you've got three. Once you start growing beyond that, you cannot manage and micromanage everybody. Mm-hmm. And that's the challenge to start with. Then you need uh, lieutenants in place, I think, really, mm-hmm. who will then disseminate the message into a team. But I think once you get over about a team of five, mm-hmm. it's really challenging to communicate um, and get everybody talking to each other well. Mm-hmm. So I spend most of my time criticizing myself or the team for the lack of communication and trying to work out how to communicate better. It is the big challenge. That yeah. burden, that overhead mm. within the business grows massively the more people that you've got in. And I think to then understand that people don't have division for the whole business, yeah. because quite frankly, why should the herd manager worry about my cafe? Yeah. Um, or mm-hmm. why does the guy in the cafe worry about the delivery of outdoor facilities? Mm-hmm. He needs his world and to communicate with his team. Mm-hmm. Um, and I need to make sure that I'm communicating with all the team leaders mm-hmm. so that we're more effective. And I think that's been the learning curve. Um, and, and the, you know, the admin team, we meet once a week. We just had, as you walked in, actually, we were just having a cafe meeting with the new head chef and, uh, and with the, uh, the other chef to try and work out what we're going to do. And we just need to keep these regular points of contact. So everyone's mm. got a voice mm. within the team, wherever you are, yeah. but I can't hear all the voices all at once because quite frankly, there's too many voices and it's sure. just too distracting,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, mm. get nothing done.
1: Yeah. So it sounds like you are encouraging everybody to have the opportunity to maybe share their viewpoint. And as you say, kind of <clears throat> what's their view of their, their world within this massive uh, organisation. How do you sort of measure effective communication within the different teams?
0: Well, I guess it's a function of how many problems you create for yourself. Um, So if we're not, if we're getting uh, problems that are just, I guess, in delivery, but don't matter to the customers, Mm. that's one thing. If we've got problems because we've not delivered to the customers what they want, that's a different problem. And those are the failures in communication that we address first. How do we get to here? And I think the, the challenge is the same, actually, as the one with the cows and the coals, is you've got to be honest about accepting that the outcome is down to you. If it's good, it's you. If it's not so good and it's suboptimal, that's also you. And the question then is, what can you do about it? And I think that's why... I've had such a long working relationship with my herd manager because we've never been afraid to put our hands up and go, we could have done that better. Yeah. We could make that work better. A cow dies. Why? Was it inevitable? No. What could we have done? Were the choices that we made in the lead up to that bad result that we could have changed? Yes. Okay, well let's try and get standard operating procedures in that avoid that outcome. And that's how we got going with the dairy farm. And I see this as no different is Mm. when we've got problems and things haven't gone as we want. um, So then then we need to address them. I think uh, seeing it through the customer's eyes of are we delivering what the customer wants is how I think we're trying to then see to measure that. If we're we're hitting Mm. customer expectations, we're doing all right. Mm. We must have done okay to get there Um, and we'll, we'll work out where we're not achieving that and solve those problems first mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah that's a lovely way of approaching it as you say being honest uh, and as you say rather than maybe putting your head in the sand or not that i say you'd do that but uh, recognizing and, and as you say being proactive how do we not do this maybe in the future
0: i think it should give everybody in the team a chance to say actual fact if we change this we get a better outcome
1: yeah
0: um and we've all got to be big enough. It doesn't matter about job titles or, you know, your own deluded position in your own head of your worth. It is um, about listening to everybody and trying to get out of everybody, how we can make things better. And everybody's got the opportunity to then impact on what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully, you know, we get there. Yeah. You know. um, We were very lucky in uh, April, our British Eventing event, uh, which is a huge event, takes mm. up about 100 acres, takes about six weeks to deliver. Um, uh, there's an enormous amount goes into it that the competitor doesn't uh, understand or care about. Yep. Uh, they just care about the end product, is it mm. good on the day? But we had the world's uh, number one and two competing this time. Um, and we got a handwritten card afterwards saying, we've never been to your venue before, amazing venue, excellent job, and we'll come back. Brilliant. And you think that, that's what needs to come back to the team because it's not a material thing. It's not a monetary thing. It is simply a pat on the back. And I don't think people realise the value of that. Oh, I was just going to say the most valuable. You know, uh, I guess they did because they wrote it, but not enough people do it um, to take the time to write, not to send an email, but Mm. to send a card Mm. and go, thanks very much. Good job. And you think that's a reward for the team that you can't buy. You've got to earn it. Yeah. But if you do, that's wonderful. Oh
1: yeah. As you say, it's invaluable, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh,
0: For me, that is really big.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Excellent, excellent achievement. So you obviously, we've talked a little bit about communication within the teams. You've obviously um, been quite uh, keen. I know you've had keen twice in your social media profile. I thought, oh, that's a good word. Uh, Keen to also talk to um, the public. Uh, or in the farming press about certain different issues, whether that's farm safety or uh, endemic disease. What sort of drove you to start wanting to have a voice in the public?
0: Uh, (laughs) Overconfidence. Um, I think think there's so much we can learn from each other. And um, I think that matters. And I think the idea that we should hide either the problems or the solutions it's just a really strange way to work. You know, I'm frustrated that if we go back to the thing that we've just done recently, that the NFU, if you like, doesn't have a diversification element Mm. because all of those journeys that everybody who diversifies go on, there'll be an awful lot of common elements, Mm. which we could learn from each other, but we don't because there's no way to communicate it. I think when it came to um, our sort of active role in the industry, I think trying to understand your lot, and then when you understand your lot, and maybe you're dissatisfied with your lot, you then want to get involved. And I remember meeting Peter Kendall, or Sir Peter Kendall, criticising the NFU. And he said, well, it's not my NFU, it's our yeah. NFU. If you don't like it, get involved. Yeah. Uh, okay, fair enough. So I got stuck in to get involved in the National Dairy Board. and um, And while I was on the National Dairy Board, we had a really horrific period in 2012, for us, uh, where the milk buyer went bust and took us for £150,000, which was hard to wow. reconcile yourself to. Yeah. And then, while I was trying to come to terms with that, we had the notification that a cow had tested positive for, or looked like it had got lesions at slaughter. Uh, very frustrating for 60 years the, T, the TB had not been an issue. Mm. The TB herd was a formality. My dad never had TB on the farm in his career. He took over the farm in 66 from his dad. While he was a kid, they'd lost the herd to TB and uh, on the AA tested scheme, the whole lot went and they started again. So his entire career from him being an active farmer in control, no TB, mm. 2012, we've got this first thing now. It's frustrating again, because we're closed herd or we Mm -hmm. think we're a closed herd. We buy in a stock bull once a year or whatever, but we've never had a stock bull go down with TB and they come from, uh, TB relatively low risk areas and they're always pre-movement tested before they come. So, um, we don't buy any cattle replacements. We rear all our own on the dairy side. So, um, the clock started running and we'd sent the tests off and we're going to do culture then we got the second test ah well because we've got a second one the first one doesn't count so we're going to have to start the clock again then we got a third one that's about six weeks again so we've had three months under restriction we've got to start the clock again i'm afraid because you've got it in the hood i know i think we know now yeah. it is in the herd mm. you need to come and test well it won't count because Um, because we don't know how much you've got in the herd and it's not 60 days from the last known positive. Really, I don't give a monkeys. I want you to come and test my herd.
2: Absolutely.
0: Well, we will, but we'll only gamma test half of them.
1: Well, which half? Yeah.
0: Do it properly. Mm. And so I was angry. I was angry as in the position. I'm angry that when you looked at the spread of TB from the Southwest, it was not inevitable. It's a consequence of bad policy. That TB spread through the country, and and a lack of adjusting the policy to the outcome of policy. So we had 20 years of chronic failure, which inevitably meant at that point in time in 2012 the wave of TB passed by me, and we become part of the problem. Um, and you know I've always felt that was ridiculous, and and I've been cross about it. And I know my vet at the time when we went down with TB for the first time, I'll feel your pain. And, and you don't have the right to feel my pain mm. because as an industry, you have not done enough. Yeah. You wrote a letter to Margaret Beckett many years ago and said, this is where we would get as an industry. And you did, and you were right. Um, and 300 vets put the name to it. But since then, everybody lives behind this. Well, we know what to do. We know how to sort it, but no one's listening. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of the thing. And that, from a farmer's point of view, you're picking up the tab for that. And that feels like a very lonely place to be. So we lost 74 cows when we gamma tested and skin tested that first time. So from nothing in my dad's career to lose 74 cows and lost 89 in the outbreak. It took about 18 months to get clear. I vowed actually when we got clear, I'd pack it in. Mm. Um, and so when we did get clear, it was a weird experience actually. Second clear test, you're clear. And I thought, oh dear. And I went through so many weird emotions because um, I'm clear, I'm going to pack it in, we're going to sell the cows. Sorry, lads, who I've been working with really hard mm-hmm. to get out, uh, I'm going to pack it in and, uh, and you're going to be out of a job. What pays the bills now? We're a dairy farm. Um, I booked all the cows in and then I rang the auctioneer an hour later and said, I've changed my mind. Wow. And so instead of packing in, we went for a herd reduction. Mm-hmm. But that's still... It still meant horrible decisions. It meant redundancies and it meant um, laying men off. And it's like a weird grieving period, I suppose, that you're not going down the path you thought. Cows are devalued. You can't get insurance anymore. You've lost 89 lactations of milk. You've got all these calves that are basically going for dog meat that you've reared for three months that are now valueless and you're getting rid of them. You've been overburdened in the sheds because you didn't know how long it was going to last. And you've got the cost of all the therapy for the, whatever diseases they've been getting while they've been overstocked. Sure. The whole thing is a catalogue of disaster and it should be very firmly laid at the makers' door. Yeah. And that being DEFRA, because DEFRA make policy, A for it, farmers are the unwilling recipients yeah. of a ridiculous policy yeah. or, or what was a ridiculous policy. Yeah. And so I think the bringing that for me to cope, with that. I remember the BBC coming and shoving a microphone under my nose just as we were doing the second gamma test because there's always those that don't go Will your business survive? Yeah. Oh, I burst into tears.
1: I'm not surprised. I felt it was mm. hard. Yeah.
0: And uh, for me to get through it, I think the best way to do it is to talk. Yeah. Get on with it. Yeah. Tell people what you're going through. Mm. People relate to it. Um, and it's an honest experience and people can learn from it. Yeah. So mm. I think it's invaluable. Yeah. I think... Yeah, We're very lucky. We sat here in this big building. We've managed to borrow a lot of money. So I've got a lot of money to pay back. But outwardly, it looks good. And I think all that glitters isn't gold. There's a story behind it all. Mm. Everyone's got their own mm. and um, and they're all different. But I think we can learn a lot from each other.
2: Mm.
1: Oh, that, that was summed up beautifully. And, and, and thank you again for doing this podcast because hopefully Yeah, we oh, can again through this, we share this story. Because as you say, it, it needs more. Uh, more sharing absolutely and I think you'd recently as well commented on Clarkson's farm uh, you know raising the issue as well
0: what what he does for farming is fantastic and Mm. the reason I think it's fantastic is um, most people are not thinking in a way that involves deep intellectual thought studying Mm. the pros and cons of most argument it's a the Brexit thing, or the animal rights thing, or whatever it is, save the badger thing. Mm. Um, it is an immediate, knee jerk response mm. to a scenario. And, he cre- and I think what he manages to do is to create the emotional story that gives people an understanding, an inner, visceral, quick response to that's not right. Mm on behalf of farming, which is a complicated message to get over. So in his entertainment program, Mm -hmm. without using loads of words like me now, he manages to convey a story which gets people to understand the reality of our existence and why we need to kill badgers. Mm -hmm. I want to save a badger is a very quick, simple message. I need to kill badgers because it's a much more complex, nuanced message. Mm -hmm. But if you're stood there with the calipers and you can see the tension on people's faces, you know it matters. Mm you know why it matters because it's financially crippling, and you care about your cows, mm-hmm. and that's just really challenging to get in a newspaper article. Yeah. So I think he does a brilliant job. Yeah. Um, you know, um, he's not right on everything, but you know, I think uh, he does a fantastic job for farming.
1: Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree with you, uh, and it's great to see such uh, popular uh, reception that it's received. Before we went live, you were mentioning about uh, fishing. And so I was going to ask you, given all this, as you say, responsibility, uh, debt, et cetera, the, the business is juggling everything. And you were saying about uh, fishing brings you joy. Could you just tell me a little bit well, about the, 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 the massive, beautiful pond?
0: So um, one of the challenges of the building project mm. is that uh, there's huge roofs, lots more yards and there's only one nine inch drain that drains the farm. So you've got to get the water off site quickly. And part of the endless uh, consultancy things that we had to do prior to starting with the flood risk assessment. So with the flood risk assessment comes a requirement to attenuate and store a certain amount of water when you get the one in 100 year storm, which is more regularly more like one every year storm. Um, And so, in order for us to meet the requirements for that sustainable drainage scheme, um, what we needed to do was to be able to store water in a place temporarily and to release that at a speed that the drains can cope with. Mm. So our solution to that could have been just a hole in the... You see it on a lot of housing projects where there's a sort of damp area. Sometimes it's bramble, sometimes it's wet. Mm. But I didn't want that because it's not aesthetically very pleasing and it's going to be yeah. front of house. Mm-hmm. So our solution was to create a couple of ponds. So we have a sediment pond with a pond adjacent to it, a water complex that horses can ride through. And underneath that goes the pipe from the first pond into a second pond. Mm-hmm. Um, the ponds are, the first one's 70 metres by about 20 metres. The, the, the second one is 100 metres by about 40 metres with a couple of islands in it. And they have the ability to store half a metre of height of water in each pond. Mm. And so that was the requirement. But I did my degree in zoology. So to choose a a dry valley to create some ponds on that scale and then to see the wildlife come. And so they are full of um, tadpoles in spring. We've got grass snakes, we've got newts, we've got the cormorant and heron now, we've Mm. got... um, the pools are full of carp and roach and tench, and to see all the life and the, the dragonflies and, and everything just uh, that we've created in what was a dry sand field. From nothing. Mm. Um, not for nothing, it cost a lot of money. No, from but, nothing. <laughs> but, but from yeah, nothing. From nothing, um, <laughs> no, but, quite. Uh, um To sit there and yeah. then for me just, uh, I think, listening to water, looking at open space, yeah. catching the odd fish, it's a lovely place for me, for I suppose a bit of um, time out. Yeah. So if I need to go and find some space, just to sit there and be there mm. and to see all of that, there's wildflowers everywhere. There's mm. life. You can. I've got the new app on my phone that enables me to listen to the oh, bird yes. calls and get yeah. recognized. So there's linnets and goldfinches mm-hmm. and chaffs and, wow. yeah, and reed buntings. It's lovely. Yeah. You know, yeah, we did this and yeah. then. Uh, again, it's one in the eye for all those naysayers that not farming, that you know, farmers and the environment, you know, we yeah. care, yeah. we care about the environment. Most farmers care about the environment. And so to actually see it there, mm. it's lovely, mm. I love it. Mm. And hopefully you'll
1: continue to share those pictures on uh, social media because well, yeah, well, <laughs> it's brilliant to see. You know, yeah.
0: I think just, you know, um, yeah. I showed my son a newt the other day, not seen one before. And, um, oh. you know, there's a lad who's just come from, lives in Crew. Who, uh, who's just started working. He's never seen a tadpole, you know. Now we've got little frogs, they're all bombing mm-hmm. around everywhere now because they're sort of coming out the pond looking for a new place to go. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there's, it's, a, it's a nice thing. Yeah, I yeah.
1: bet. That sounds amazing. Yeah.
0: Uh,
1: how involved are the family now uh, in the project?
0: So, um, I think... Um, my wife is now PA for the manager, managing director of a feed firm, and she's setting up a travel company. Uh, the less she has to do with it, truthfully, the better. Yes, I, think I can imagine. Probably yeah. better for the pair of us, because hmm. otherwise all the stress goes back in the house. Yeah. But it's hard. Um, if It was not her vision to be doing this, it's mine. Right. So Em um, so, uh, is uh, happy doing what she's doing and trying to grow her own thing with two kids, a nine-year-old daughter and a 14 year old son and Sam is obsessed by the idea of being a dairy farmer or a farmer right so um, he is you know we've got his pork going into the cafe we've he's just got a beehive because he's trying to get uh, honey that he can then sell he likes the idea of trying to grow something and make money out of it and so we've got his own sheep as well in the paddock so there's our own lamb coming through. Um, and so he's really keen to get involved, but doesn't want the equestrian side. Right. Um, so yep. he sees his future over at Grandpa's as he sees it. Mm. And uh, Daisy um, hopefully might want this. Yeah. She's keen on riding, so you never know. Oh. Whatever. I was very lucky I got a free hand, so there's yeah. no obligation. They uh-huh. want to go and be... A nurse or a doctor or a yeah. uh, fireman yeah. carry on yeah you know, it's whatever they want to do lovely so, wow exciting but they got a great opportunity so i know.
1: was gonna say yeah uh, yeah brilliant as you say they've got plenty of time to choose anyway yeah um now then cow breeds
0: oh. <laughs> so when we bought organsdale in 92 yeah. alan howarth had some brown swiss cows we at the time were Frisian, I came home, your Dad, you know nothing, you should have Holsteins, they're the <laughs> way to forward. So we had Frisian Holsteins. And um, we bought a limited number of um, brown Swiss heifers. They were very expensive, the brown Swiss cows at the time. So we bought some brown Swiss young stock and a brown Swiss bull. And then um, having run the brown Swiss bull with the Frisian Holsteins, the question came, what do we do? We were pedigree. And so what do we do if we want to stay pedigree Um, and uh, these brown Swiss are appearing on the ground. Mm -hmm. And so we just took the decision to keep the brown Swiss crosses and we could get a CSR pedigree certificate for the brown Swiss. Um, The question then was, what do we breed the brown Swiss to when they matured into the herd? Mm. And we couldn't maintain a pedigree certificate for them if they went uh, to black and white, because the black and white society wouldn't give you a 75% uh, black-and-white animal certificate mm-hmm. um, which is a bit odd because it's just a bit colour specific really you know you can have it for Friesian Holstein but not mm-hmm. for uh, a brown Swiss cross yeah. so we took the decision then to go more brown Swiss and um, so the entire herd now is pedigree brown Swiss mm-hmm. um, my farm consultant thinks I'm bonkers and would have me sell them immediately um, We like them in principle, because they're different, maybe just a contrarian, but
2: there's (laughs)
0: value in that. Um, We had hoped to try and make a value out of the milk. And so came 2008, we launched, my cousin and I launched um, a brand of milk called Precious, which was, uh, we set up a company called the Contented Cow Company. Mm. And we launched a milk in a calcium polymer pouch so it was recyclable, it was freedom food approved and supposedly extended shelf life. And we sold that into Sainsbury's mm. and we got 30 Sainsbury's stores that year and we won an award for um, innovation. And uh, Dairy Crest in the same year got given 30 stores for their milk in a pouch. So they'd made 95 million pounds profit that year. We'd got overdrafts. and um, They'd got the what was called the jug I think, product. It was like milk in a pillow, which sat in a, yeah. you, you have your own jug and you drop the, the sachet in it and okay. snip the corner off. Uh, and uh-huh. I think an awful lot of milk in Canada is sold in that format. Mm. The problem that we had, um, was that that milk, uh, started to curdle actually very embarrassing. Cause I went down to London to stay with some friends, bought our own milk from a Sains Richmond Sainsbury's and it mm. curdled in his cup. Um, the problem was the abuse trials, which were signed off by the factory that were producing it, were never done. It took uh, some time to get to the bottom of that. Right. And um, the issue we had was that with the calcium polymer pouch at the time wasn't aseptic. So the, the, mm. the milk going into it um, had bacteria that were already in the pouch that we couldn't sterilize because the pouch is right. already formed. And so we could only get fresh shelf life on mm-hmm. it, not extended shelf life. I see. And that meant the resupply to the supermarket distribution chain became untenable Mm. um, because instead of having one supply every three weeks or uh, one a week, we're having three a week. And so it just couldn't be funded, Mm. I don't think anyway. So unfortunately, I pulled a plug on that, um, which didn't go down very well with my cousin. But it was the reality. Mm. Mm. Um, I just thought we were going to end up losing a lot of money Mm -hmm. to try and hopefully come out at the other side. Um, and so it didn't cost us a huge amount of money in the final analysis, but it was a good learning curve. Mm, yeah. Um, so Brown Swiss is where we are. In fact, we are just waiting this year to have Frisian cross Brown Swiss calves dropping from our heifers for the first time since then, because I, rather than sell the herd and swap the herd, will probably take my consultant's advice and head towards a more frisian based animal. Okay. Brown Swiss are very big. Mm -hmm. Um, and he's saying that you're a grass-based system now these are very costly cows to keep um relatively speaking your variable costs are too high Mm -hmm. compared to the top performing frisian herds so you need to make an economic choice that's hard because i'd really like to find some value and attach it whether it be ice cream or whatever yeah i'd like to try and find a value-added brand that we could then develop for ourselves mm. that would give us an identity. And now we've got the cafe with a perfect
1: outlet, kind of. outlet yeah. for a
0: desktop trial to say, does this work? Doesn't it work? Good point. Mm. Um, and, uh, we've got customers. So, you know, we could, we could make that yeah. work.
1: Yeah. Mm. Maybe a future venture. We'll Keep our eyes peeled. Uh, so, so Brown Swiss, what sort of key personality traits do you like about them?
0: They're easy to work with. Yeah. They're, incredibly friendly dozy to work with that is a blessing and a curse because occasionally you get (laughs) the odd one that you're almost too friendly yeah butterfat and protein tend to be slightly up they give slightly less milk than the Holstein Mm. so when we were milking Holstein Friesians, we were peaking at 48 litres or that kind of region Mm. um, on twice a day milking but that means you're locked you're locked into a uh, when you're trying to get them pregnant, keeping them inside, you're trying to uh, to give the consistency to the diet that you need, mm-hmm. and um, that means you're locked into the protein market. And those things are all outside your um, your control. Mm-hmm. So uh, the idea was to have a cow that gave slightly less milk, which you could keep outside for longer. Mm-hmm. So we'll turn out in February or March, depending on as soon as ground conditions allow, and we'll yeah. bring the cows in in December. Right um so they are out for a lot longer yeah. we're trying to make that system work as mm-hmm. best we can um but they you know i wouldn't say the jury's out I'd say the jury is definitely decided as far as my consultant <laughs> is that they're not optimal yeah um they have the longest gestation period of any of the dairy breeds, so that's not helpful uh and they're so big but you know mm-hmm. at the moment coal values have been terrific um so there's a there is a trade-off, but he would tell me that yeah, I, need to, <laughs> I need to trade them off completely. Um, mm. But that's a hard decision. You, you know, sure. when, when Foot and Mouth came to town mm. uh, in 2001, we had a horrible position where the next-door neighbours heard of Got Foot and Mouth. And so I got rung by Whitehall and said, your cows will be shot tomorrow and we'll burn them alongside your neighbours. Or on the same pyre, actually. So they made a dirty, great big bonfire in his farm and my uncles who farmed at the end of our road and ours were due to be shot. And it was one of those horrid situations where um, we'd paid for consequential loss of income insurance since the previous outbreak, was it 67 or whatever? Um, And uh, because the cows were healthy, that insurance premium wouldn't work. It had no value because it was by direct, wasn't by direct government order because you had to give permission. So I had the situation where Whitehall was saying you're going to have your cows killed and I'm walking around at night and I'm kicking the muck off the beds and I'm mm-hmm. worried about who's bullying and I'm worried about carving, thinking tomorrow if I take the mo- if I choose, you're all dead, ev- all of you. And that's a horrid thing. You're walking around at night tomorrow everything that you've worked for, all those decisions that have led to that, I'd be, what, 35 years old. Everything will die tomorrow if I take the briefcase of money. Yeah. And... Um, and then you're looking at it, and you think, oh, they're my cows. And I feel like that now, they're my cows. I don't want mm. to sell them, yeah. they're mine. Yeah. And, um, and so I said, no, and they said, well, you will say yes. And I, said, I will not say, you don't know me well enough. Um, yeah. I won't have it. And so unless they have it, I'm not signing. Yeah. You can sell what you like. Mm. And My uncle um, came on the back of that as well. And so we both kept our herd. Whether it was a good yeah. decision, I don't know. He fell off a roof, broke his neck and died three months later, so Gosh. possibly not. Um, and economically, probably the wrong decision. But emotionally, it was the right decision yeah. for me. Yeah. And, uh, like you it, say, so it's
1: not all economics, well, is it?
0: Well, yeah, the trouble is, would we be here now? Probably not. You you go down a path and that's it. You make your choices and yeah. you end up where you end up. But you, you wouldn't end up here with the same amount of money. There's, you'd have lived a different life. Exactly. So who who knows where we would have ended up. But I'd have had that horrible experience haunting me. Yeah. And I'd have felt guilty, you know, no so I couldn't do it. But it was, uh, you know, so it's my herd, um, regardless of what my consultant says, they're still my cows and I I want to do the best I can with them.
1: Yeah, I can understand. (laughs) Now we've, uh, well, mine's a little bit cold, but we we have consumed a coffee already. Um, Could you share your coffee habits, please? uh, Um, Well, I'm trying to drink less. (laughs)
0: Um, So um, my coffee habit is, uh, I've been drinking way too much. Um, now we've got the cafe, I, Ooh, we're selling mm. organic, um, coffee. It's ridiculously expensive, uh, coffee beans. They're 25 pound a bag. Um, I can buy coffee beans for the cafe at sort of in Booker's or Costco and, uh, yeah, Costco for mm. probably six pounds a bag. These are a lot more than that, but it makes really good coffee. Yeah. Now I've never been a coffee snob. I've always been a Nescaf man and it's simply that it's on my doorstep. Mm-hmm. So now I've been drinking far too much fresh made coffee, yeah. and now I've got a taste for it. So yeah. now <laughs> when I go somewhere else and have, uh, I mean, we have Nescaf in the morning when we sit around as a team, um, and, and but it's a different flavor and I've become a coffee snob. But I'm trying to, yeah. I'm definitely trying to drink less because mm. um, through the build, and through uh, the pressures of work, whatever, sleep's not always easy. Mm. I don't need any disincentive to sleeping. Mm. I need to probably swap for drinking slightly less, but it's lovely coffee.
1: Yeah, I can vouch for that, listeners. <laughs> definitely, definitely drop in for a coffee. And, um, and is there anything else you'd like to share that you think our listeners will be interested in hearing?
0: Gosh, um, I don't know i come to council because uh you come and see what we're doing so we've just we've just become finalists so in the yes congratulations diversification farmer of the year award so we wait till october to see how that pans out but it's exciting it's nice i think it's nice for the whole team to be um recognized to be recognized for doing something interesting and different and and uh we shall have a swanky evening out on the back of it and have a bit of fun together. And I think that'd be nice.
1: Yeah. And very well deserved. Thank you. Excellent. Well, Phil, it's been an absolute joy to chat with you this morning. Thank you so much for your time and making me feel so welcome in this beautiful uh, location. And as Phil just said, I would absolutely encourage anyone who's uh, in the area or outside the area to come in and sample a coffee and come and see the beautiful, um, impressive, doesn't even touch it, Kellsfall Hill. It's it's stunning. Um, Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. Please follow or subscribe to the show so you can join me next time when I'll be talking more about communication, cows and coffee.